Good morning, church. What a morning. What a privilege it is to gather in God's house together to worship, to sing God's praises, uh, to hear and to receive. The church needs to gather, and we're so blessed to have this building, this facility. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. In our country and in the modern world, we can often be just like the Sadducees in the day of Jesus. The Sadducees, if you remember, they didn't believe in angels or demons or miracles. Or if we do believe angels and demons exist, we can often forget that we're locked in a spiritual battle. That our life as Christians is spiritual warfare. I know that I can often forget that and walk through life oblivious of unseen spiritual realities. As we continue our origin series in the book of Genesis, today's preaching will be a little different. We're going to focus on one part of one verse today. Typically, we do preach through larger sections, otherwise we'd be in Genesis forever. But today, we're going to take time to slow down and just explore what the Bible has to say about angels and demons. And more importantly for us as believers, to know how to walk in victory over our enemy in Christ, that in Christ we've been given victory and we can walk in that victory. So let's look at the first sentence of Genesis chapter 3, uh, Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I'm just reminded that you're more than able to speak through a donkey. You can speak through and use anyone at anything at any time. So I pray, God, that you would just use me in some way, Lord, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Lord, give us ears to hear. Help us to receive. Fill us. Teach us. Empower us. Instruct us by your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So church, so far in Genesis We've seen a perfect God create a perfect world for his perfect people. In six days, God spoke the universe into existence, creating everything from nothing. We've also seen God create mankind in his own image, male and female. Male and female. Gender isn't something we decide. It's given to us by our creator. And then God places Adam and Eve in a paradise that's beyond comprehension. A temple where Adam and Eve walked and talked and fellowshiped with God. It was a place of worship where human beings glorified God and would be destined to enjoy Him forever. A place of work where they would be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. A place for the Word where God spoke His truth and revealed His will and His plan for humanity. God also created marriage, a lifelong one-man, one-woman union, not just for work, but for pleasure, for both, work and pleasure. In, in other words, it was going to be fun and amazing, exciting for Adam and Eve to be making babies, lots of babies, lots of image bearers to fill God's creation. And that's where we are. A perfect God was created a perfect world for his perfect people. But the story doesn't end there. We turn the page to Genesis chapter 3 and we see a new character. There's a new character, not just God and man, but the serpent. 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast. As we think about the serpent, this new creature that's introduced in Genesis 3, we realize it can't be just any ordinary creature. We see later on that it strikes up a conversation with Adam and Eve. And the serpent isn't hanging around for just some small talk. The serpent isn't chatting it up about the weather or who won the Phillies game last night. I mean, there's probably not much to talk about because the weather was probably 72 and sunny all the time in the Garden of Eden. The serpent is leading a discussion about God and the good life. Have you ever had a philosophical discussion with a serpent, with a snake? Anytime you're having a philosophical conversation with a serpent about the meaning of life, it's probably not an ordinary day. That's unusual. You see, Adam names the animals, they come to him, but none of them strike up a conversation with him about the meaning of life. So who is this serpent? Where does the serpent come from? Genesis 2.1 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host with them. The host probably refers to heavenly host, to angels. And if that's the case, they were created, these hosts, these unseen spiritual beings, were created during the first six days of creation. And we have to read the rest of Scripture to learn more about this, these heavenly hosts. And as we read and study Scripture, it seems like there are four groups of them, four groups of them, angels, cherubim, seraphim, and living creatures. Four groups, angels, cherubim, seraphim, and living creatures. The first group would be angels. Angels are created spiritual beings without physical bodies. They're created spiritual beings without physical bodies. And the key word here is created created. You remember everything falls into one of two categories. You have the creator and you have creature or creation. You've got creator and creature. And since there is only one God who is infinite, eternal, and unchanging, angels don't belong to the creator category. They belong to the creature category. You are the Lord. You alone. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the sea and all that is in them. You preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. This host of heaven, these angels, they were created good. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, Genesis 1.31. And they were created to have fellowship with God, to know God, love him, and obey him. Second, God also made cherubim, spiritual beings who showcase God's goodness in the very presence of God. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. Psalm 99, verse 1. We also see cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant, which is an earthly copy of the heavenly throne. God meets with his people above the mercy seat between the two cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. Third, we see the seraphim mentioned only once in Isaiah chapter 6. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. 
and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Fourth, there are living creatures in Revelation 4, which have features of both cherubim and seraphim. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Revelation 4. All these creatures, they showcase the glory of God. They worship and serve and love God. And there are many of them. In the heavenly Jerusalem, there are innumerable angels in festal gather, gathering, festal gathering, Hebrews 12, 22. And in the book of Revelation, John sees this vision of a myriad of myriad, thousands upon thousands of angels, a huge number like the stars, so numerous that it's beyond counting. And if these are merely creatures, how great and awesome must the Creator be? But they showcase God's glory not just in number, but in power. In 2 Kings 19, King Sennacherib of Assyria sends a massive army to conquer Judah. And so King Hezekiah, seeing this enormous army, King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, they pray. They cry out to God. They cry out for deliverance. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. 2 Kings 19.35. 185,000 soldiers dead. Not a single soldier enters the city or shoots an arrow. The entire army is wiped out by the angel of the Lord. The battle was over even before it began. If that's what one angel could do, what could a myriad upon myriad, thousands upon thousands of angels do? And what does that say about the one who created the myriad upon myriad, thousands upon thousands of angels? See, angels showcase the glory of God. We expect that. But here's something a little less obvious. Angels also showcase the glory of man. As glorious as angels are, they're they're not, they're not made in the image of God. Yes, angels are spiritual beings. They're powerful, intelligent. They have moral responsibility, but they're not image bearers. Only we as human beings are image bearers. That means we're more like God than even those angels. As powerful and as glorious as they are, they're not image bearers. In fact, angels were created to serve us. Are they, angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Hebrews 1.14. Paul also affirms this. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? 1 Corinthians 6.3. 
So Paul argues that because we, created in the image of God, glorified, exalted one day, because we're destined to judge angels, well, surely we can resolve any dispute in this life. So the serpent of Genesis 3-1 must be in this category of unseen heavenly host. But now it's visible. It's taken on the form of a serpent. It's in this category. It's this angelic, angelic creature made to showcase the glory of God and the glory of man. And yet the serpent is described as crafty, more crafty than any creature that the Lord God had made. The Hebrew word translated as crafty is the word arum. The word crafty means subtle or clever. It's often used in a good sense. Proverbs 14, 15 says the simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thought to his steps. And that word prudent is the same word as crafty. So you could translate it as the crafty gives thought to his steps, gives careful consideration to his steps. And you remember Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10, 16, to be wise as serpents. So crafty implies cleverness, wisdom, an awareness of how life in the universe works. You might even say street smarts. So in and of itself, crafty is like intelligence or skill. It can be used for good or evil. It's not good or evil in and of itself. There's actually a Hebrew wordplay here that's really fascinating. As we saw earlier, the word for crafty is arum, while the Hebrew word for nakedness is arumim. It seems to be this intentional link that Moses is putting in between the end of Genesis 2 and the start of Genesis 3. The man and women are naked, arumim, and they are confronted by the serpent who is crafty, arum. So the arumim is confronted by the arum. The naked is confronted by the crafty. And I don't think Adam and Eve are expecting this. They're not expecting the serpent. They don't know much about him. But they do know this much. God gave them dominion over him. Genesis 1.28, God tells Adam and Eve, Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing. So God gave Adam and Eve dominion over every living thing, including that serpent. So we're immediately drawn into the narrative at this point in Genesis 3. What will the arumim, naked humans, do with the arum, the crafty serpent? What's going to happen? How will the humans exercise dominion over this living creature? Next week, we'll look at their conversation. But for today, we're looking at the backstory. And movie studios do this all the time, right? You have this blockbuster superhero film. It's a huge success. And the movie studio wants to make even more money. So they do an origin story. They don't do a sequel. They go back in time to tell the backstory. Prime Video just released Rings of Power. I don't know if you guys are watching that. It's the backstory behind the Lord of the Rings fantasy novels. And so Scripture gives us the backstory of that crafty servant. Scripture gives us the origin story for where that serpent comes from. And that's what we're going to be exploring the rest of our time. The New Testament identifies this serpent as the devil, as Satan. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth. 
Revelation 12.9. We've got the whole Bible. And so we know something Adam and Eve don't. We know the true identity of that crafty serpent. It's none other than Satan, God's evil enemy. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. John 8, 44. Jesus teaches us that the devil, that Satan, is a liar and a murderer. And that's why, for us, lying and hatred and anger are so dangerous. Those who lie, those who hate, those who give in to anger are following the murderer and the father of lies. That's why we're warned in Ephesians chapter 4, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. So church, we've got to beware. We've got to be careful. Anytime we give in to anger, we're opening the door for the devil, potentially. So how did the serpent become that way? How did he become this murderer and liar and deceiver? Didn't God create everything good? Where did evil come from? Well, Satan began good and glorious, probably the most powerful and glorious angel that God created. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond. Beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you, and you were on the holy mountain of God. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 12 through 15. It's hard for us to imagine that this was once Satan. That Satan was the signet of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty, decked out in the most splendid and amazing way, anointed as a guardian cherub right next to God, exalted to the highest rank and authority among angels. He was blameless, good, holy, and pure. But that's not how verse 15 ends. Let's look again at Ezekiel 28, 15. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. Till unrighteousness was found in you. So sometime between Genesis 1.31, the end of the sixth day, and Genesis 3.1, unrighteousness was found in Satan, and Satan fell. So before the fall of man, there was the fall of Satan. And when Satan fell, he didn't fall alone, but many angels fell with him. Maybe you wonder how it happened. I wonder how it happened. Maybe it began when Satan had a sneaking suspicion that God was holding out on him. God is holding out on me. Or maybe the thought that the universe would be, would be better off under my management. And the thought festered and became desire. And the desire became action. But the other horror hor of all that is, as we step back and think about it, that's how our own hearts work. How many of us let thoughts become desire and then desire become action? It's a cautionary tale in there for all of us in the fall of Satan. 
Isaiah 14 describes the fall this way. How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, O son of dawn? How you are cut down to the ground. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly. I will make myself like the most high. Not content to be guardian cherub, the highest of all angels, Satan wants to be like the most high. He wants to be God. And that pride led to his fall. I wonder, did he think, did Satan think that he could beat God? A creature overthrowing the creator? And we begin to see how insane, how ridiculous, how foolish sin is. Sin doesn't make sense. It's not a logical issue. It's a moral issue. A heart captivated by sin is just drawn into sin, no matter how foolish, no matter how destructive, no matter how insane it is. He, Satan, failed to grasp that even if he were motivated by self-interest, obedience to God would still be best. God's best for him and his best for himself were actually one and the same. From Pastor Erwin Lutzer. And how quickly, church, we could forget that God's best for me and my best for myself are actually one and the same. God's way is always the way of life and blessing. That means indulging in sexual sin, whether it's pornography or lust, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, is never in our best interest, but robs us of true joy and intimacy and leaves us stained with guilt and shame. That means greed, pride, ambition is never in our best interest, but actually enslaves us, enslaves us to getting more, achieving more, wanting more. Satan wants to ascend, not to serve, but to rule. He does not want to worship, but to confront. He does not want to obey, but to rebel. Little does he realize that this desire for the highest of all ascents will eventually lead to the lowest of all descents. He who had enjoyed the glories of heaven will descend into the very horrors of hell. And this fall of Satan, sobering as it is, teaches us many things. One, one thing is that there is no dualism. In dualism, both good and evil have always existed alongside each other. They're locked in combat, and it's not clear who will win in the end. The good news is that there's no such thing as dualism. God and God alone, who is good and does only good, God alone is infinite, eternal, and unchanging. So evil is a corruption of God's good creation, and a created thing can never, ever be greater than the Creator. So God stands over and above evil like he stands over and above time and space and matter and energy. No evil exists outside of God's sovereign purposes and control. As Lutzer puts it, the moment Satan sinned, he lost. Whenever he wins, he loses. Because God always wins and Satan always loses. So the moment Satan sinned, his fate was sealed. It was over. It was completely over. For God if did, not, did not spare angels, but when they sin, for God, if God did not spare angels when they sin, but cast them into hell, 2 Peter 2, 4. 
in Revelation 20.10 says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so the heat in the lake of fire only gets hotter with everything Satan does. God is so powerful, so glorious, so awesome that he takes what is evil, he takes rebellion, he takes sin, he takes the fall, and forces it to accomplish his good purposes. So every time Satan does something evil, God automatically turns it into a win for his own glory. So Satan destroyed Abel, but God raises up Seth. Satan destroyed everything Job had, but God is vindicated in the end. Satan tormented Paul with a thorn in the flesh, but God says, my grace is sufficient for you. And in the greatest triumph of all, Satan killed Jesus, but God raises him up on the third day. That means even Satan is God's servant. He's still God's servant, always has been and always will be. Before, he might have served willingly, but now he serves unwillingly and still for God's glory. As Martin Luther said, the devil is God's devil. The devil is God's devil. So before Satan can touch Job, he needs permission. Before he can sift Peter like wheat, he needs permission. Before he can afflict Paul with that thorn, he needs permission. And so before he can touch you or me, he needs permission. When God says, stay, Satan must stand like a dog by the table while the saints feast on God's comfort. He does not dare to snatch even a tidbit, for the master's eye is always upon him. From Puritan pastor William Gurnall. So God, despite what our eyes might see, despite what we see going around in this world, despite all the evil that we see going on, God is still completely in control. He's still in charge. Satan needs permission before lifting a wing or even uttering a single syllable. And when Satan gets permission, he's only doing exactly what God wants him to do. So Satan gets permission, and he needs permission. He can't do anything apart from God's will. Satan gets permission to tempt Adam and Eve. He wants to trip them up and make them fall away from God. But God is actually using Satan to test Adam and Eve, to see if they will love him, to love him more than everyone and everything. As Pastor Luther put it, Satan tempts, but God tests. Satan tempts, but God tests. Same action, but two completely different purposes. And it's the same in our own life. We've all been tempted. We've all been harassed, attacked by Satan. Satan tempts us to try to make us fall away from God. But God tests us to refine us and strip away our flesh, to strip away our pride and strip away our self-sufficiency. It's the same action, but two completely different purposes. So God takes the willing rebellion of Satan and uses it, turns it around for his perfect purposes because God always wins and Satan always loses. Think of the difference between four-year-olds playing t-ball and major league players in the World Series. Well, there's just no comparison. 
And there's no comparison between God and Satan because the gap between the creator and the creature is infinite. That means Satan is always outmatched. He's always outwitted. He's always outmaneuvered and outdone by our almighty God. So whatever Satan intends for evil, God always intends for good and for his glory. In his perfect and divine wisdom, God permitted, God allowed creation to fall into sin. He allowed that. He permitted it. But you don't need me to tell you that. You just open up your news feed. Open up the newspaper. We're living it. We're living in a world filled with war and famine. A world filled with crime and injustice. Full of disease and death. We live in the sin-cursed and sin-stained world. But the worst part of it is that we're the problem. It's a world where we fall short and violate God's commands day by day. And yet, God demonstrates his own love. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God permitted sin that he might defeat it, conquer it, destroy it in the ultimate act of love, the greatest love that this universe has ever known, Jesus dying in our place. The eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, lived the perfect life we could never live. And then he died under the judgment and wrath of Almighty God in our place. In those hours on the cross, Jesus suffered the equivalent of eternity in hell for every single person who would ever believe. And this, church, is the good news of the gospel. And you, who were once dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Colossians chapter 2. So Jesus came. He came and disarmed the strong man. He plundered him, put him to open shame. And Jesus paid our debt. And so now we are liberated out of bondage to Satan to serve God. The very victory that Satan thought he had when he pinned Jesus to the cross was the very means of his own defeat. That victory was his defeat. And if you're here this morning, if you're tuning in on the live stream, and you haven't yet turned away from your sin, and surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. Do it today. Do so today. Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil, to free you from Satan, to turn you from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. And there's no greater act of love that has been or ever will be done. Let's think about it. Though many, many angels fell, none will be redeemed. No angel, not a single fallen angel will ever, ever be redeemed. There's no hope of redemption, no gospel of salvation for fallen angels. Angels that are lost are fallen without hope forever. Yet in Christ, in Christ, God has redeemed a countless multitude of sinful human beings from every tribe, language, people, and nation. So come to him, Come to him today. Stop 
resisting God. Stop fighting Him. Stop resisting Him. Either way, God will get glory out of you. Either as a slave to sin, an object of eternal punishment, or as a slave to grace, an object of eternal glory. And for those of us in Christ, here's our concluding big idea. In the great drama of history, we fight our enemy Satan because Christ has already defeated him. In the great drama of history, we fight our enemy Satan because Christ has already defeated him. In church, I want to just leave you with three different ways that we resist and we fight our enemy Satan. <clears throat> Number one, we resist by submitting ourselves to God. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. James 4, 7. In church, we must be so careful here. Anytime we live in rebellion to God, in disobedience to what he has revealed to us in his word, we open the door for Satan to attack us. We must remain submitted to Christ, following his way, living in obedience to his commands. Number two, we resist by claiming our authority in Christ. Jesus said, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Luke 10, verses 17 through 19. So if you are in Christ this morning, if you are one of his own, a child of God, a son or daughter, you have all the power and all the authority of Christ. You have all power and all the authority of Christ. It's not your authority. It's not my power. Not my victory. But it's Christ in you and Christ through you. That's why we must abide in Christ, as Rick taught us last week. That's why Paul could say, as we abide in Christ and take hold of his victory, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it, the evil spirit, came out that very hour. See, that's not just for the Apostle Paul or the disciples or Jesus. We have the same power of the resurrected Christ living in us. We have victory over Satan and every single evil spirit. And finally, number three, we resist by our faith. We resist by our faith. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. 1 Peter 5, 8-9. through 9. And Satan will do everything he can to undermine your faith, to make you think that God doesn't love you, that God's grace isn't sufficient for you, that his mercy in Christ is somehow lacking. And this can be especially true when we're walking through a prolonged season of suffering or trial, or we feel like we're being attacked or persecuted. We can be tempted to think that God's not good, that he's not faithful, that he's not for us, that he's not with us, that somehow he's disappeared. So we resist him, we resist Satan, firm, in our faith. In the great drama of history, we fight. We fight our enemy Satan because God has already defeated him. Let's pray. Father, this is the victory that we have, Jesus Christ, whom we take hold of by faith. Oh Lord, help us. 
Help us to walk in this victory that you have secured. Help us to trample Satan underfoot. Help us to abide in, in our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And by abiding, Lord, we have the power and victory over our enemy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As we close our time here, we need to remember, God always wins. Satan always loses. So we fight our enemy from a position of certain victory in Christ. But that's the key. We have to abide in Christ. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Apart from Christ, we're a sitting duck for the roaring lion to devour. And so the more we understand our helplessness, the more we understand that we're inadequate, we're insufficient, we can't go to battle on our own, the more we'll seek the help that comes from God. I want to encourage you, church, to cultivate that sense of helplessness this week, that sense of desperation, the sense of how much you need God, you need the Spirit, you need Him. And that will lead you, that sense of desperation will lead you to strap on the full armor of God and to seek God in prayer because you need it. From Ephesians chapter 6, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And Paul goes on to list out the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of readiness, the shield of faith, helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, praying all times in the Spirit. So church, the Lord has given us the armor of God for protection and for spiritual warfare. So as you go out this week, may the God who loved us and gave his son for us to free us from the power of sin and the power of Satan. Lead us to abide in Jesus this week and to walk in the power of the Spirit this week and to fight the good fight of faith as we resist the devil and see him flee from us. Amen. Amen.